Welcome to another episode of Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Beth Stavell, a member of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera-Montero, John Stovell, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today, I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Nijay Gupta. Nijay is a professor of New Testament and Northern Seminary. He has written numerous books and articles on the New Testament. His latest book is 15 New Testament Words of Life, published by Zondervan Academic in 2022. So our conversation is going to have three sections or movements. We'll begin by discussing Nijay's scholarship, and then we're going to explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. And we're going to end uh, by talking about what we call marginalia. So these are fun questions that help us get to know Nijay a little bit as a person. Um, while this marginalia can sometimes seem like those other things are outside or separate from our academic lives, we um, at the Bridging Theology Podcast believe that these are aspects of our lives that inform who we are as scholars and as people in very important ways. And so we uh, appreciate including them. So uh, we'll have a preview of Marginalia that's available at the end of the episode, but if you want the full Marginalia, uh, it's available to our Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe, share it with others, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash bridging theology. Nijay, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Beth. Thanks so much. It's, I've, I've connected with Ambrose before, but I've enjoyed episodes of Bridging Theology, so great to be talking to you. Um, so we like to start with uh, you just telling something about yourself that most people might not know. Most people might not know. Um, well, I live in Portland, Oregon, which is a little bit weird because my um, kind of my job office is in Chicago. I work for Northern Seminary, so people are sometimes confused by that. But we've lived in Oregon for a long time. We love it here. So. I am an enthusiast of a lot of Portland things here. Um, I love coffee. I love good Asian food, which they have here. And I have an electric bicycle. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, I love that you started out by saying it's a little weird because I'm pretty sure the motto for Portland is keep Portland <laughs> That's weird. That's right. Is keep that Portland right? weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I visited there a while ago. Austin, where I'm from, my hometown also is keep Austin weird. So I was mm -hmm. like, which one came first? I don't know. Um, I love the unique weirdness of Portland. So. <laughs> So um, I'm sure many of our listeners will be interested to learn you're also a podcaster. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about your podcast, Slow Theology? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Um, so this started a few years ago with my friend AJ Swoboda, uh, who's a theologian in Oregon and longtime pastor. Um, he wrote a book, really good book called After Doubt, which is kind mm. of about how doubt and faith are kind of in this mix together of the messy mm. Christian life. And doubt doesn't have to be a sign of losing your faith or exiting the faith. Um, kind of a little bit of doubt is normal as it is in any relationship. Um, and, and how God kind of builds that into just trust, just how we trust God and the things that we don't always know. Anyway, so we started a podcast because there's so many people interested in just lots of different aspects of the big questions of Disappointment with God, suffering, kind of scandals in, in modern Christianity and, and throughout time. So we just, you know, started just the two of us talking about all these subjects. And then has morphed into kind of a, a way of doing theology that isn't sort of making snap judgments. You know, we both, mm. um, probably you as well, have experienced, if you go on social media, everybody, there's mm. a thousand opinions and they're all, many of them are instantaneous. Yep. 
And we believe that, you know, what scripture points us to is slow formation, you know, kind of Eugene Peterson's long obedience in the same direction. So we want to kind of model that, you know, we spent a couple of years just talking about deconstruction and how to renovate or reform your, your, uh, your spirituality in healthy ways. And now we're kind of in the building phase. Okay. Ah. If, if we've demolished some things, maybe some things that need to go, how do we build? So right now we're actually in a, a series on the creed. So it's called slow creed. We're just going line by line through the creed and just talking about what does this mean for Christian life? How do we, how do we engage with the messiness of, you know, calling God father when uh, God doesn't have, um, you know, gender or sex? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what does it mean that Jesus, you know, was born a Virgin Mary, things like that. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to, to be journeying through that because it's, it's stuff that people ask a lot about and it's really important stuff. Yeah, that's so wonderful. You know, um, one of the things I found in teaching my seminary classes is how much people struggle with being honest about their doubt or their big questions. Mm -hmm. And um, as an Old Testament scholar, one of the conversations that we have a lot is, you know, there's a lot of space for lament and for questioning in scripture. The scripture itself gives us that picture. Um, I love that you guys are working through the creeds and the pieces there, because I think it's a space where people might know pieces of it or have heard it a lot, but there's so much more to explore there to go deep with. So that's wonderful. Um, so thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, we just want to chat a little bit. I want to chat a little bit about your scholarship. And also, I'd love to hear more about how you see your vocation as a scholar. Um, so I want to start just with a little bit about your work on Paul and Paul's theology. Um, and I know also your early work includes that worship in Paul is an important part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your award-winning uh, Paul and the language of faith, your commentaries on quite a few different Paul's books, Philippians, the Thessalonians, Colossians. Um, can you share with us how you got interested in studying Paul? And I'd also love to hear how your thoughts on Paul have changed across the years, because you've been writing for a while on this. Yeah, thanks uh, for sure. Um, love to talk about that. Gosh, it's it's hard to say what exactly I was thinking, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was digging into it. Um, you know, I would say, you know, just in terms of looking at the New Testament, Paul's someone that you get to spend a lot of time with. Mm-hmm. Um, just with his letters. I mean, Jesus is obviously the star in for, the four Gospels, but He's not the author, and there's a lot of things going on in the Gospels. But what I love about Paul's letters is you get a lot of different snapshots of different angles in the different letters Mm -hmm. to get a really good construction of Paul from different vantage points. Sometimes he's happy. Sometimes he's mad. Sometimes he's joyful. Sometimes, you know, he seems lonely. So he gets, you know, you get a lot of these different snapshots. Um, I love the focus on cities. Um, sometimes he's writing to Rome, sometimes he's writing to Corinth and we don't always take that seriously, but, um, he's a person that traveled and got to meet a lot of different, uh, people. Um, you know, I, I, I've been interested in Pauline theology, but I'll say my passion has been Paul's ethics. Hmm. Now that's to say theological ethics, right? Paul doesn't just have this sort of handbook that he carries around, but I'm, re- I've always been really interested in what it means to live the Christian life, mm, not just yeah. believe a set of beliefs that we can kind of check off on a checklist, but um, what are we supposed to do with our life? Like I'm, I've been just reading uh, some of uh, first, second Thessalonians um, this morning. And Paul talks about living to please God. And so, mm. you know, I think when I first became a Christian, I thought, you know, the, the main thing is to have the right beliefs. Mm-hmm. 
I think Paul's approach really is the main thing is to live in such a way as to please God. And having right beliefs is crucial to that, but mm-hmm. too many people stop there. So, I think I'm really interested in um, what Paul thinks about what it means to be Christian, I guess. It's a simple mm-hmm. it's a simple question, but that's kind of been the preoccupation of my work. Have you found that that view or the way you understand Paul presenting that has changed as you've studied it? I mean, you said 15 years, um, or do you find that Maybe it, it grows or blossoms or what, how would you describe that relationship with Paul? Yeah, great question. I think the teachers that I had in books and even in, in some ways in seminary emphasized Paul's brain a lot, uh, mm-hmm. emphasized you know doctrine, which is good and right. I think where I've grown is looking more at embodiment and the life of the emotions. I've been doing a lot of processing. Uh, embodiment, I've been thinking about, you know, since my dissertation, but Paul in the, in the emotional life is, you know, probably the last three to five years. Mm. I've thought about doing a, you know, a, a article series on, you know, theological feelings mm. or the gospel and our feelings. Um, and, and what I, I guess what really stands out to me in Paul's letters is I've been working a lot on Philippians, how often he talks about feelings, mm-hmm. what we call feelings and emotions whether it's joy or sorrow, he talks about Epaphroditus nearly dying and that would have caused him mm. sour upon sorrow. He can talk about, he says, don't grumble, which is basically don't be grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he talks about feelings a lot. They're not, they're not accidental or just a happenstance. He actually commands emotions, rejoices, mm-hmm. commanding an emotion, which is weird. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll say, don't be angry or he'll say, don't grumble. It's very interesting. He'll actually tell his readers what to feel. Now, yeah. there's more to it than that. We can probe that. And I have some ideas mm-hmm. around that. But I've been thinking more about this because I work with so many pastors, and I know you do as well, Beth. Yeah. But I work with so many pastors that have not been taught to process their emotional life. Mm. And I've been in periods, even recently, of of just burnout because I didn't take care of my emotional health. Yeah. AJ uh, and I processed this on our podcast as well. And so I've been, you know, when, when people ask me, come lecture to a group of pastors, that's actually one of the first things that I talk about is, yeah. is wellness, wellness and emotional health, according to Paul. Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, some of the things I've been exploring recently have been, you know, one of the things in, in Old Testament studies that has been blooming is emotion studies and sort of thinking about yes. how do we conceptualize, understand our emotions, but also how do we embody those emotions? Um mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting to think about how we have these texts that are ancient texts, but they show such a range of emotion, right? Um, And uh, what does it look like when we're engaging our pastoral life or our academic life or whatever part of our lives to actually engage our emotions as part of that? So, you know, um, that reminds me a little bit of some of the words of life that you have in your 15 New Testament words of life. Um, I think it's really interesting. um, You know, the book isn't called... 15 New Testament words of importance, right? right, right, right. It's 15 New Testament words of life. Sorry if I had a really bad British accent for that. <laughs> no, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you mentioned when you were talking about Paul, you know, what does it mean to live a Christian life? So is that part of the motivation for writing this book, for thinking about the words of life? Um, and and how do you see the focus? Like, how, why did you decide this particular focus, this focus on life? That's a great question. Um, you know, the the wording comes out of the Gospel of John, where 
you know, Jesus gives a hard teaching and a lot, you know, the gospel of John very well, Beth, but, um, you know, where Jesus gives his hard teaching and a bunch of, you know, would be disciples or disciples walk away and Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And they say, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I thought about how Jesus is uh, life. Um, but, but for us, scripture is also life. It's called the word of life. Mm-hmm. By Paul, it's it's um, you know kind of the way we come to know Jesus in many ways is through Scripture, and so that got me thinking mm-hmm. about life and the many different dimensions of how the Bible talks about life. It it could talk about life in just the mundane, you know, mm-hmm. like the life story of so and so, but it can talk about life as um, what gives our life meaning. Um, you know, He came to give them life to the full, right, mm-hmm. to the fullest. Um, and so I wanted to do a couple things with the language of life. On the one hand, I want to talk about the meaning of life, which is found in scripture and found in these New Testament words like love, peace, hope, and so forth, grace. But then also, there's just a reality that when you have something like Paul's letters, you're just you're reading a lot of mundane life. He's talking about, hey, bring me my cloak, bring me my parchments. Yeah. You know, he's telling Timothy not to drink, you know, too much uh, water and drink more wine. You know, um, you know, it, it, there's kind of greetings from people. There's, um, you know, logistics. Have this letter read in your church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just reminds me, when we read the Bible, we're not reading about something other than human life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we're not reading about the eschaton, even though some parts of scripture are about the eschaton. Yeah, yeah. We're not reading about some sort of theological hobby that we have, you know, do aliens exist? And, you know, like we're we're reading a, you know, I think one of the aha moments for me over the last 10 years was reading a book by Bruce Longenecker called Remember the Poor. And Mm -hmm. I know this insight's not going to be mind blowing to you, but it was to me um, that most of the readers of Paul's letters or even the New Testament were not elites. They were Mm -hmm. commoners, maybe many of them slaves. Uh, People that we think of as subsistence level, hand to mouth, blue collar. Um, And just to think this was very meaningful for people that just didn't sit around reading theology books. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a powerful thing because Paul's letters, Mm -hmm. you know, are long. (laughs) The average ancient letter is about half a page, Mm -hmm. about 100 to 150 words. And then you have first Corinthians and Romans, which are extraordinarily long. You have the gospels. And so here you have commoners reading really, really long books compared Mm -hmm. to the kinds of, of texts they engage with on a regular basis. And yet they did so because these things were meaningful for not only for their hopes for the future, but for their life today. I want that to be the focus. So we mm-hmm. wanted, Zonerv and I wanted to have the words real life somewhere in the title. It's kind of fun to to go back and look at uh, title options. I don't remember them all, but I'm sure <laughs> yeah. you've had that with your work. Um, we, we definitely wanted the words real life in the title somewhere. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. It reminds me of two conversations I had recently, you know, the idea of it being everyday life that Christianity was Mm -hmm. like the Paul was talking to, that the New Testament talks about, the Old Testament talks about too. You know, I was just Mm -hmm. teaching a class on Leviticus this past week. And I was saying to students that when I first heard I'd have to teach the Pentateuch class over and over again, I was like, I have to keep teaching Leviticus. And what I love about it, actually, I get really passionate about it because it's about all the little details of everyday life, like giving yeah. giving God everything, the clothes we wear, the 
whether we have mold in our house or not, like every inch of our bodies, like, um, but I feel like that also we see that reflected in, you know, things like the parables where Jesus is talking to everyday people with everyday things with mm-hmm. seeds and crops and grass and wheat and, you know, the, the things they touched every day, the things they experienced every day and that he cared about, he, he cared about our everyday lives. Um, and so sometimes we can treat Bible and theology, like this separate big thing over here that isn't directly connected to all of our life, but it really is about all of our life. So, you know, speaking of all of our lives, <laughs> I look at your list of books and um, you write a lot. <laughs> like, uh, you know Guilty. that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, but I'm always interested how you come to decide which projects you're going to do. Um, I know you probably get invited to do even more than we see. Um, how do you decide which things matter to you? Which ones do you want to put your time and energy into? Um, and has that is that something that's always been the case in this way? Have you noticed that shifting at different stages in your life? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, okay, so I, I kind of think in three categories. I'm gonna be since I know your listeners really want authenticity and honesty, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Okay. I kind of th- think in three categories. Um, one is people. Who are the people I want to work with? Mm-hmm. So it could be a publisher. Um, you know, Anna Gissing is one of my editors and she was at IVP and now she's at Baker. So I'm like, I want to work with her again. So now I'm doing a book with Baker because I want to work with her. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, sometimes it's people or it's people to collaborate with um, co-authors like Mike Bird um, or AJ and I are considering doing some writing together. We have done some writing before together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, uh, Aaron Heim and Scott McKnight were editing a book called State of Pauline Studies. So it's like some of it is like I, I, I get excited about working with certain people. Yeah. Um, just like we've served on IBR board together, Insta- mm. Institute for Biblical Research. You know, I convinced Patrick Schreiner to join the board in my place because of the people. He's like, is this a lot of work? I was like, it's work, but you get to work with these great people. So yeah. that's kind of scholarship. So one is P is passion. I'm going to be perfectly honest to you. A second one is prestige. Um, you know, if a certain publisher comes knocking, um, you know, it's hard to say no. And so sometimes it'll be, okay, this is a big deal. For example, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had a chance to write for the Oxford handbook on Pauline, Pauline studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was kind of a last minute add in. Um, and I didn't really have the time to work on it, but I couldn't say no yeah. <laughs> to that project. Yeah. It was kind of a bucket list project yeah. to work with Oxford, to work with um, Matt Novenson and, and some of those folks. Um, so I, I, I do a little bit of that, but not a lot, but I would say the third one is passions. And I'm mm-hmm. sure this is obvious, but in your early career, you don't get to do that much because you're kind of number one, you're beholden to, um, you know, the invites that you get and want to do, you know, say yes to those. Mm-hmm. And then publishers aren't willing to take risks as much on, you know, in your first five, 10 years of your career. Um, but more and more, and I'm sure you're experiencing this too, Beth, but more and more, I'm, I'm just saying no to stuff so I can write on things I'm really passionate about. Yeah. So I'm yeah. writing a book on Paul's theology of love as a sequel to my Paul in the language of faith, because it's a subject in Paul's ethics. I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to hold space for those kinds of projects. And so it's kind of a mix in the year of what, you know, 
where I'm at in my availability. If someone says, Hey, write this. Um, I'm, I'm no longer in the place where I'm just putting things on my resume. I don't, I, I don't want to just add things to the resume. Um, I really, I want to slow down, spend more time with my family, but also just do good, slow writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the place where I'm at right now is just really saying, you know, how do I want to leave a really formative, positive impact on pastors? Yeah. That's the majority of my writing going forward is, is focused on that. Yeah, that's so great. You know, it's funny that I don't know that I've ever thought about describing it in the way you just did, but I know I think about those pieces. Um, I actually have an article finishing up for November for an Oxford handbook on Hosea. So I'm hearing that. And then, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a junior scholar, someone who's kind of just starting. And um, I was saying, you know, there's a process you go through where you write the things that you get to write. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a stage where you write the things you want to write. Exactly. And I think being able to acknowledge, Hey, I really feel passionate about this. One of the best questions I got from a publisher an editor at a publisher was what do you want to have written? Um, (laughs) And you know, what do you, when you're done want to have written? And I thought, you know, that helps to target what I want to make sure I do in the next, you know, however many years I've got left. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Um, you know, one of the areas you write about that I really connect with is the view of suffering and hope. Mm -hmm. Um, that's something I, I teach about and matters a lot to me. Um, so my work has been on suffering and hope, particularly in like the minor prophets or the book of the 12. And I know that you've also got to work on a, an edited volume, um, shall be bright at last, which, Mm -hmm. uh, also talks about that. What was it like grappling with Paul's view of suffering and hope? And has that influenced your own views about that? For sure. For sure. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, it actually starts from a place in my own life. You know, I, as a young person, I was diagnosed with a stomach illness that has been really challenging for me. Um, and, and, you know, I think when I turned, I think 39, if I remember, I got shingles, <laughs> which, you know, a, a lot of the people that I told that said, oh, I got that too, are people in their like 60s and 70s. And so, um, you know, I, I've I've had to grapple with physical limitations with, you know, my prayers not being answered sometimes. Um, so really though, that, that interest comes from personal, you know, existential, uh, interests, mm-hmm. not just academic curiosities, but also because I think there's just a huge misunderstanding of Christianity in the popular discourse that mm-hmm. Christianity somehow is meant to, to brush aside suffer either to solve suffering by, you know, kind of just, wishing away all your problems hmm. uh, or to escape from suffering by kind of just focusing on going to heaven or whatever. I'll fly away. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, time and time again, we see in the new Testament, old Testament, but also in patristic literature, um, these writers really embracing it as a part of our formation um, without saying that it's what God wants. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. My daughter, as you may know, you know, Beth, but maybe listeners don't know. My, my youngest daughter had cancer from ages one to three. She's cancer free now by God's grace. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that opened up a whole set of questions about what God's doing in the world and how, on the one hand, if I could go back and stop her from getting cancer, of course I would. Yeah. On the other hand, do I see her uh, having benefited from going through that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. Um, and we just live, we live in that. Um, hmm. And I just, you know, this goes back to that 50 New Testament words of life, but I just really want people to know that the Bible gives meaningful reflection on the things that occupy our, our hearts and minds. Yeah. And that's one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that walk of having, having a way to address the questions of suffering that doesn't avoid it, that shows how what Christian life looks like in relation to suffering, yeah. um, but not to do that in a way that leaves us hopeless while at the same time, like not doing it in a way that um, makes us run away from it, which is so yeah. powerful and important. You know, that is a really helpful transition to our second part of our show, which really focuses on this connection between scholarship and church and Christian life. I don't know that we've really separated them that much because to be honest, I think everything that you talked about really flows into our Christian life and into mm-hmm. the church. Um, but I'd, I'd be really interested you know, the chapters that you have in 15 New Testament words of life, they seem like they would be really natural topics to cover for sermons. Um, I know you also preach uh, from time to time. In fact, I've gotten to listen to some of those preaching times. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this. I like listen to your preaching videos sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So do you have any advice for pastors who might want to try and communicate some of these really big, important ideas to a lay audience? I mean, me, me telling pastors how to do it feels like the cart before the horse. But, um, you know, let's say I was talking to an, a, a pastor who's new at preaching. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, you know, what I would say is, okay, when I was, when I was kind of coming of age as uh, a ministry leader and preacher, I think I had this impression that preaching was basically simplified lecturing, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, kind of dumbing down a lecture. And I don't, I don't think of it that way. I actually don't think of lecturing that way either. Um, I, you know, I'm going to be repeating myself here, but, but let, let me give an example here. Um, middle of the pandemic, people are just starting to go back to church, small numbers of people, and they're sitting in church. The last thing they need is a 39-minute academic sermon that is highly theoretical and um, kind of goes over their head. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember visiting a church in Chicago, and there was a guest preacher, and he didn't actually have a ton of content to his sermon. A lot of, I mean, it was biblically based. A lot of it was just encouragement. When I think about what he did that was so drawing to people, really drawing them in mm-hmm. was connect with them on a holistic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I think preachers are really anxious about getting their doctrine, right. Which is good. Getting their biblical exegesis right. Which is also good. <laughs> but to me, preaching is about connection um, in the end. I mean, you should make sure it's as accurate preaching as it could be. But it's really about, um, you know, when I think of Paul saying, comfort one another with these words, we will always be with the Lord, you know, comfort, encouragement, coaching, Mm -hmm. cheering on, like all those things. That's hugely important. And I don't know that pastors are always um, in that frame of mind. Um, I think they want to get the text right, which is great. But, But that's, to me... Uh, means towards connecting with somebody. I always draw from Bonhoeffer's uh, use of Colossians where where he takes the text, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he basically says, when you preach, it's as if you are inviting Christ to walk among the people in the church, Mm -hmm. 
blessing them and calling them to conviction and action. Mm-hmm. So preaching really is an invitation for Christ to be present and do ministry in the hearts and lives of the people that are there. It's kind of a simple idea, but it really just then is about transformation and not just conveying of information. I know, I know the preachers should know that many of them do, but as a young preacher, I probably was trying too hard to make it quote unquote academic. It's funny. Sometimes people will tell me, uh, Nija, I bet you love expository preaching. (laughs) I think because they think I basically want a sermon to be like a really long Bible study lecture. Yeah, I actually don't want that <laughs> because I can go on YouTube and listen to you know wonderful lectures. Um, you know, I I I I guess the the piece that I would want to encourage pastors with for preaching is imagination. Mm. Yeah, um, I was just with a group of you know seventy five ministry leaders and and they were surprised I kept using the word imagination because they just haven't been taught to use mm. their imagination. But if you look at the Old Testament, <laughs> yes. if you look at the parables, if you look at Paul's letters, if you look at Revelation, I mean, it is just replete with, oh my gosh, Beth, we both love metaphors. I should have started there. <laughs> it's replete with metaphors. Yeah. And I just feel like um, if you just, if you look at my book, 50 New Testament Rose of Life, I mean, there's a metaphor on almost every page yeah, um, or some kind of analogy. And that's because I've realized probably all too late, but I've realized that's really what connects with people mm-hmm. is if you, you know, tell a story, if you use an image that's going to be local to them, familiar to them, mm-hmm. that's why we use movie quotes and illustrations. These things are familiar, but many of them are metaphors. And so I love, I love the book, the theorist book, Metaphors We Live By, mm-hmm. because it conveys this idea that we learn and our imagination is filled with metaphors. And so I encourage mm-hmm. I encourage preachers to really think through, okay, I have the text. My job isn't just to preach the text. Mm -hmm. My job is to preach the text in a way that's going to connect with the people that are here, that live here in the 21st century. And I want to use the tools of communication, which include metaphor, to be able to make that connection. And And if people do that, um, I think their preaching is going to be not boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, it reminds me of a conversation, two conversations I had in class recently. One of them, um, I had a student who was asking me, so how do I preach about the uh, the hypothesis, the documentary hypothesis, JDEP? And I'm like, I'm not sure you preach about that. No, please don't. Please don't <laughs> do that. First of all, and then we had this really interesting conversation about the spirit of God coming upon artisans to mm-hmm. make the tabernacle. Yeah, totally. And how this is one of the first moments you see the spirit of God come and fill someone, right? To do work. Mm-hmm. And it's imaginative work, right? It's imaginative work to create the space for the presence of God. And it's artistic and beautiful. And mm-hmm. it, it it retells, like you say, it, it does faithfully retell the story of God's interaction with the people. It tells the story of creation through the images. But they were allowed to use this moment of the spirit's encounter to imaginatively engage the people of God for worship. And so I think it's such an interesting thing to say, you know, that's part of what we do when we're preaching is to draw people into the good news, draw people into God's presence, to give mm-hmm. encouragement. Um, and that that is being faithful to scripture. That's mm-hmm. being faithful to God. So, um, you know, that connects actually to something I wanted to talk to you about um, prayer and worship. 
Um, so, you know, from across when I look across your history of writing, there's lots of things you've written on. Um, but one of the areas I know you've worked in before is worship and also you've worked in in prayer. And so I'm really interested in how studying these areas in the New Testament have shaped your own worship and prayer life. Um, what does that look like for you? Yeah, my dissertation is called Worship That Makes Sense to Paul, um, which I actually stole that phrase from Gordon Fee, his paraphrase of Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2. Um, yeah, I, as I've said, I've always been interested in kind of the the lived, you know, Christian reality, uh, the embodied Christian reality. Um, I think what I, the, the hammer I beat a lot with my students is that the new, t- the biblical, the New Testament, but actually the biblical conception of worship is not really focused on practices as it is on kind of our, our life orientation. Mm-hmm. So there's a pretty comfortable um, bond between the language of worship and the language of slavery or service. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, as you know, from the book of Exodus, you know, we all know, let my people go, which is, you know, the famous, you know, let my people go song. But what we don't know is often is the rest of that, which is so that they may worship me. Mm-hmm. In the wilderness, and um, you know, the Hebrew word for worship is also the word for serve or serve as a slave. And sometimes in the Septuagint, translated as dulua, where we get the word uh, dulos, which means slave. Why is that important? I've been just working on this for an essay for a paper for SBL, which is this conference we're going to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Many ancient philosophers, moral, moral philosophers, but also biblical uh, writers and uh, early Jews and Christians, they all uh, said something like, um, whether we're free or a slave, we're all slave to something or someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading about this in Epictetus, which is a Greek philosopher, and in Seneca, and this is also in Philo of Alexandria. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Um, you know, we're we're going to nobody is truly free in the sense they're detached mm-hmm. from a, an obsession or a preoccupation. And so my interest in worship really is um where are we pointing our life? Mm-hmm. Um what's actually what's actually behind the ways that we live and the ways that we think. You know, it's kind of funny. Um when I used to teach undergraduate at Seattle Pacific university, which was a long time ago, but uh, uh, I used to have a sex talk <laughs> with my students, which they probably did not want to have with me as they were freshmen. And I'm this, you know, professor, <laughs> but I would say, you know, Hey, you go to college, you th- experience all these freedoms and you want to drink and you want to, you know, have sex. Are those really are those really your choices, or maybe it's market capitalism, or maybe it's the commercials you're watching, or you know? I start mm-hmm. to get them to think, you know, why are these positioned as the right decisions to yeah. make? Um, who who you know? Where is this pressure coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think of worship, I don't you know. It's easy to think of music. It's easy in our day and age to think of going to a church. Um, I don't. I don't actually think that's how the New Testament writers, biblical writers, thought. Obviously, better to be in the temple, right, than to be anywhere else for a thousand days. You know, in the Old Testament, they talk about that. But I think they, Jews and Christians, had a deep sense of of a life 
um, of uh, of consecration, as mm-hmm. I like to call it, consecration to God, hagiasmas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up in the details of how did the Christians worship and the ways, but I think the first question is what did, what did they think worship was. Yeah. You know, something I love about that. Um, one of the things I talk about a lot, I teach a, a biblical theology of justice class and I talk about how biblical justice is framed as worship and that worship is framed mm-hmm. as justice that they, um, when you look across the, the old Testament and the new Testament, there's a link between um, serving God through acts of justice in the world and mm-hmm. and what true worship looks like. Um, I, you know, we get that in Isaiah 58 and in Micah 6, 8, and, you know, but we also get that in the New Testament with a lot of these connections between, um, you know, you say you love God, um, you know, are you taking care of your brother or your sister, yeah, yeah. right? Um, John's letters talks about that quite a bit. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking of Bob Dylan's song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, yep, and yep. that this idea you know there is a sense in which uh sometimes i talk about exodus as as freedom from and freedom to you mm-hmm. know freedom from the captivity they were in but freedom to serve god right mm-hmm. um it's such a powerful piece and i do think that we've made worship sometimes only this sung thing that yeah. misses the life of worship that flows mm-hmm. out you know and so um you know, uh, I'm wondering for you, I mean, you are a busy guy, um, mm-hmm. but you are, you are a lot of things. You wear a lot of hats. Um, how does, what, what, you know, what nourishes your spiritual life in the midst of all the things that you're, you're busy with? Um, you know, what is, how does it flow out in worship and prayer for you of what worship looks like for you? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a couple things. One is I'm just a really curious person. Um, you know, I remember interviewing for a job, you know, maybe I think it may have been my first job. Um, and and the person interviewing me says, you know, I look at your CV and you're all over the place. You're studying this topic, that topic. He's like, uh, how do you respond to the accusation that you're just a dilettante? You know, a dilettante is someone that is tries lots of things, is not good at any of them. And I, you know, I kind of have, have, uh, uh, you know, propensity towards just curiosity. I'm just curious Mm -hmm. about a lot of things. And so that leads to the second point, which is, um, I think I process life through writing. Hmm. Um, you know, people say, how did you write this book or that book? And, you know, I, I don't write so much for other people. I like the fact that people read my writing as much as I just like the art of writing. Hmm. Um, yep. you know, I just had lunch with my wife and, you know, I made kind of a fancy egg and potatoes lunch and she's like, you made this fancy, you put tomatoes and onions and, you know, mm-hmm. um, kale and all this stuff and, you know, all these spices, you know, and she's like, you know, wh- why would you do this if it, you're just going to eat it and it's going to be over with? I'm like, I just, I just like the art of it. And mm-hmm. I think, I think when it comes to writing, um, I don't actually, I don't, I'd be interested in what you do, but I know people that read their lectures to their students. I don't do that, but I have done that. And I real I like doing that. It sounds like a lot of work and it sounds a little bit boring for the students, but I have a good friend that does it. And I know it's, you know, Carl Bart did it, by the way, if you didn't know that he read his lectures word for word, but um, I've done it before and I really like doing it because 
I like how I can take the time to construct certain phrases or allusions or um, maybe like little Easter eggs for people that know certain things that I'm kind of coded. Like, for example, I try to sneak in mo- movie quotes into books without making it clear the movie quotes. <laughs> so awesome. in, in a book coming out in March, I have assistant to the regional manager, which is from the office. <laughs> I have that hidden somewhere in the book. If you, if you and your listeners find it. And then in, in a book, uh, actually, I think maybe in the 15 to his life, I have a, a couple of Hamilton quotes that are kind of not, not made obvious, but, um, <laughs> You, so, you say something happened in the room where it happened. Yeah, I do. I did. I did do that. Yes, that was that's low hanging fruit. But I did do that. But I, I think I just like the art of writing. I, I do a lot of writing. I think because um, I think I just like the aesthetic of it. Yeah. Um, and I, so I don't. So you'll notice this. I don't do long books. I think I get too bored. You know what I mean? Like people, are like oh, you write so much. No, I write a lot of different things, but they're not very long. (laughs) So like Craig Keener can write like a thousand page book, but I only will write like 150 pages. So (laughs) there's, there's, there's a, you know, size difference there to account for, but I I think I just like it. What's your, what's your take on that? Do you like writing? You know, it's interesting. Someone, um, so I get, I get the opportunity to mentor other people periodically and uh, people will say like, how how do you write so much or how do you find time or how does that work? And I said, I just don't know how not to do that. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is a thing it's hard to explain, but I remember since I was little, when I figured out you could write and you could express <laughs> like what was inside you Yeah. and other people could read it or not, but you could just convey all of that in writing. I just was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I want to do this forever. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I just am always writing something and sometimes those things get published and sometimes they end up out there in the world. <laughs> but a lot of times I'm just thinking and I think mm-hmm. by writing and I experience God by writing. And um, I was the other day, I was going through some uh, journals that I had and before I had kids that I woke up up early in the morning, um, no I would wake up and just write, like just write, just read something and think about it and write. And I still do that. I think in more like targeted ways now, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but there's just something Free about, writing. yeah, I just, I just love to write. And I think, um, I think for some people, it is almost like in your blood um, and brings you joy. So it's interesting because the question is, you're like, what gives you spiritual life? And so I think it's really interesting that, you know, I've said before that for me, writing is like a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it's, it's one of the ways I talk to God and God talks back is in that process of like thinking through what I'm saying, listening to God, writing. Um, and so I... I don't know if you'd use that language of it. Would you use that language or would you describe it some other way? I'm I'm sure it fits that category. Um, I think it's just an outlet for, um, for processing what I'm learning. I love learning. I love, you know, going to seminars and, you know, we have a local science museum and wife and I will go Mm. to evening events where they'll have lectures on, you know, why the sky should be dark with no lights pointing up to the sky. Or, you know, we went to a lecture (laughs) series on how hops are made for beer. I mean, like just, you know, I don't know. We just, you know, just a hunger and thirst for learning. Um, And then writing is just a great chance to kind of synthesize, process why it's important, 
you know, I don't do a ton of really technical academic scholarship. I have done that. I don't, I don't particularly like it because sometimes I feel like it's, it's just not going to be utilized. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think a lot of the writing I do is me trying to wrap my head around something and then, and then be able to pass that on. Yeah. So it's going to feel like I'm like going over here for a second, but um, I, I'm also really interested in your story in terms of how you bring yourself to your writing and to your faith and to your scholarship. Um, I know that you and I are both part of Every Voice, which is a mm-hmm. center for kingdom diversity and Christian theological education. And I know both of us really care about diversity um, in the global the global body of Christ as it connects to, to theological education. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your own heritage, your own story and diversity in that. And, and, you know, how is that connected to your passion? I know you reach out quite a bit to different diverse faith communities. I would love mm-hmm. to hear more about that. Yeah. You know, I think, I think when you and I both probably were in, you know, our film theological education, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but it, it was my, you know, the, Anything that deviated from the norm of being a white male was something that we just don't include in our scholarship. <laughs> like, you know, as a student, I don't think I actively suppressed it. I think it was just sort of marginalized. Like this, this is irrelevant to, you know, textual criticism and to studying the Greco-Roman or Jewish backgrounds of the Bible. Um, I think my interest has come more from... Uh, realizing that real life dynamic of scripture that, you know, if it is about real life, then who I am really does matter mm-hmm. in faith and theology and community. And then I think that experience where people of color and sometimes women will just kind of magnetically gravitate towards me at conferences <laughs> because they feel comfortable with me. Yeah. Having never even talked to me, there's that sense of like, this is a safe person to talk to, or this is a person mm-hmm. that is like me in some way, in the sense, perhaps just that we're, you know, outsiders in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's mattered more and more to me because, and I know this is true for you as well, like we experience privilege of having a tenure track job at stable institutions. We have, we're paid to do research and teach. Um, so we have, and now we're kind of mid-career, we have opportunity to start mentoring and, and paying forward some of the um, benefits that we've had. Mm-hmm. One of my, I don't know if I'd call it a, a bad thing, but when I look back at who my mentors were, they were all white men. Um, they were wonderful. But when I think, okay, did I have any female mentors? I didn't. That could be my fault. Um, but things have changed now and, and Beth, you and I are positions where we can, um, we could start to change things in the academy and change things in board service and publishing and what kind of series we do and who we work with. Um, so I, I feel like I'm at a place, maybe it's just what you, what you can do in your mid career, but I'm more transparent with who I am in my mm-hmm. writings. I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes people will say, don't use I language in your writing. I use it all the time. <laughs> I just think what they're trying to say is don't let the personal dynamic interfere with the desire for objectivity. Mm-hmm. I think you can, you can be thoughtful about objectivity without, you know, 
trying to be, you know, trying too hard to avoid eye language. But um, you know, I don't, I don't, I think we've been misled to believe that the academy is a place that shouldn't have who I am <laughs> as yeah. me versus me yeah. as an academic. You know, I, I'm, I'm just me. And I, I really want that for my students. I want that for my colleagues mm-hmm. that who you are matters mm-hmm. in all of who you are. I know in, in the academy, there's lots of conversations about disability. Um, there's conversations about language and globalization. Mm. Um, I think those are welcome. There, I will admit 20 years ago, I wasn't in that headspace. And I would have been one of the people saying, let's not talk about feminism or globalism. Like I, w- I would have been one of those people the way I was trained mm-hmm. to kind of poo-poo that as PC or irrelevant or even polluting to the main conversations. Um, now I'm still interested in atonement, you know, some of these big kind of traditional mm-hmm. things. But this idea that, you know, we can't bring who we are or who we mm-hmm. are doesn't matter. Um, I think that those 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 false pillars are falling everywhere, like in business, in you know, in in entertainment industry, mm-hmm. where we say representation actually does matter, you know, and and hearing from outsiders does matter. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but some no, of those things really have become more important to me. Yeah, it really uh, does. You know, I um I've been. Um, almost have a, one of my commentaries is almost out. And uh, I say probably two years from now, you'll see it. Yeah. Um, but, is this um, the story of God one? Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to um, that. So, um, but as I was writing it, um, like I literally wrote with a kid sitting next to me drawing. Yes. And as a mom who had relatively, when I started writing relatively recently had kids um, and that, I didn't realize how much it affected how I wrote or what mm-hmm. I noticed, yeah. but my editors commented to me the amount of times I talked about children and the amount of talk times I talked about what happens to women. Yeah. And they said, you know, it's not that like it's in the text. It's just other, you know, you spend way more time on that than, than your counterparts who are writing the same on the same topics. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I wasn't intentionally like, oh, I shall be a feminist and I shall write about <laughs> women. Like I wasn't yeah. doing that. I just was writing from what I see and what yeah. I notice. Your life. Yeah. And um, and so I think um there's something really powerful in that to be able to say there's a value that it doesn't take away from the process of closely reading scripture. In fact, it adds to it because we're adding what we uniquely see because of that location, because we have a maybe a different, a different piece that we're bringing. Um, and I think I remember also being trained to turn in some ways to almost like push that away. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting to say what happens when I, when I bring it back while still doing all the balance of the careful reading and all the other things I've learned, um, you know, what does it mean that I am Jewish and Gentile? Like what, what happens when I read that way? Because Mm -hmm. that's who I am. Um, and, and, you know, so that's, that's been really powerful. And I think sitting along side other like scholars of color for example and learning from them saying wow there are things that i would not see without you like thank you for showing me like then you see things i wouldn't see otherwise so you know and that actually just connects to the end the last thing we do in our show which is to talk about who we are mm-hmm. um and so uh we're going to move to this last section that we call marginalia um this is this is these are just some fun questions to get to know you a little bit more nije um and as we mentioned earlier, this content will be available through our Patreon. Um, so here's a few questions. So 
What are a few books that you read recently that really impacted you? A few books have recently really impacted you. I'm going to talk up my friend Amy Peeler's new book, Women and the Gender of God, Mm. which Mm -hmm. really raised the question, um, should we believe in a masculine deity or is there a masculine preference with our God? And she answers no, but she does it in a a way that uh, looks at scripture, looks at theology. She's not trying to overturn Christian tradition. She's not trying to ignore parts of the Bible. She's just trying to look at it from the perspective of both the fact we use father language for God, but also, uh, for example, that Jesus comes from only a woman. What does that mean? There's no, mm-hmm. there's no male husband there. Um, father anyway. So that's a, a book that I, I, you know, I've read a lot exegetically on women in the Bible but I haven't written something from that unique theological perspective, which is great. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk up our mutual friend, um, Patrick Schreiner, mm-hmm. who wrote a book recently called Political Gospel, mm-hmm. Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. And his argument is, um, you know, we have, to, we have to be careful to avoid two extremes on the one hand, trying to make the Bible into kind of a red state or blue state text, which it's not. On the other hand, saying the Bible doesn't have anything to do with politics, and then his whole mm-hmm. argument is Jesus being a Messiah is political. Yeah. Jesus proclaiming the kingdom is political and makes us think about how God wants to transform this world, um, but not to put all our hopes in human uh, saviors. Mm-hmm. Those are two books that I've read recently that I really loved. That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, that's one of the conversations I mentioned I teach a justice course. We talk about the political aspect of Jesus. Um, and also one of the things we often often say, and I love that I know Patrick's on this, on this key too, you know, um, Jesus is not Republican or Democrat. Jesus is Jesus is the king of all kings yeah. <laughs> that overruled, that really rules over all mm-hmm. any kind of policy that we might have. But it, but because of that, actually presses every one of our beliefs politically. So yeah, I love that. I love that. And obviously I'm appreciative of Amy's work on uh, women in the image of God, such important work. Well, thank you, Nijay. I mean, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and um, to the listener, I'd like to thank you too for joining us today. Um, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to help us, um, please share the podcast with others. Subscribe on your podcast player. Consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, as we said, you'll get some exclusive content um, and you can learn more on our website, bridgingtheology.com. 